Bible and go to 1 Kings chapter 7. I did uh, think of a couple other things I wanted to mention to pray for that I mentioned this morning, one that I did not, that I forgot about. Uh, keep Judy in prayer. She's not with us this evening because she's not feeling well. And again, as I mentioned this morning, keep our elections in prayer as well. Um, again, we ought to be praying um, that the Lord will put people in office that will uphold his righteousness and holiness. That's what we should be praying for. Um, and then regardless of what happens, then we should pray for the leaders that God has set in office. You know, like whoever gets in there on Tuesday or in 2024, God put them there, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so pray for them because God's the one that establishes kings and, uh, of course, for us presidents. So uh, we're in First Kings chapter 7, and it is always... An honor and a privilege to be able to go to the Word of God and to look to see what He has for us. And First uh, Kings chapter 7 is where we are, and two weeks ago we finished up chapter 6. And of course we did not uh, look in First Kings last week because the the uh, Filipino missionaries that we had with us, and they were a blessing for sure. But we a couple weeks ago we finished up chapter 6, and we saw how the temple pointed to the gospel story. All the way from Genesis to Revelation... From man's need for Christ to the new heaven and new earth, uh, the temple pointed to it all. And tonight we're going to begin chapter 7, and we're not going to get through the entire thing, uh, but we're going to learn a little bit about Solomon's house, but then we're going to focus in on one last element of the temple as it points to the glory of God. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 7. The Bible says, But Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to come before you once again this evening to hear from your word. I pray that you'll just help us to be challenged by it, but also that you'll help us to be encouraged by it, because uh, it is an encouraging thing to be able to go to scripture. And I thank you so much for uh, giving us the ability uh, to not have to wonder what you expect and not have to wonder who you are. You give it all to us right here in your book. I pray that you'll just be honored and glorified in the service. I pray that you'll just help us as we hear the preaching of the word. And I pray that you'll just give me the right words to say this evening. And that will be an encouragement and a challenge to your people. In your name, amen. So in, in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1, <clears throat> we start out by seeing uh, that it talk, it's talking about Solomon building his own house. And it says right there that it took him 13 years. And then it'll we'll, we'll see in a few moments here that it, it goes on to tell us uh, what it consisted of and what uh, it was about. But this house, uh, this palace, it would serve as a dual purpose. It would be the palace compound and it would be uh, really his personal residence, Solomon's personal residence. But we know from a couple weeks ago, and maybe you don't know, maybe you forgot, but uh, it took seven years for them to build the temple of God. It took seven years for them to build the house of God. And we know this from, I believe it's 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 2, and also verse 38. But here in verse 1, the Bible tells us that it took Solomon 13 years to build his own house. Almost double the amount of time. Now some people, they'll take this to mean that he invested much more into his house than in God's house. Because it took almost twice as long. Uh, now, I could be wrong, but I'll, I'll show you a couple of reasons why through Scripture, but I don't believe that this is the case. I don't believe that, uh, from what we see in the Bible, that he invested much more into his house than God's house. Uh, and one of the reasons is because this chapter, if you read it, and you'll see, uh, it does not have a negative narrative. 
And actually, the writer does not say anything negative at all about Solomon's house. But the Bible also tells us that Solomon built God's house first. And I believe that right there speaks to uh, clearly where his priorities lied. I believe that he knew that, hey, I need to take care of God's house first, and then I'll worry about my house. Uh, so, but we also got to keep in mind that, as I mentioned several times since we've begun 1 Kings, that uh, this was a time of prosperity for Israel. These people were not poor. It was a very a rich time and a very prosperous time for Israel. And because of this, there were many building projects that were taking place. And let's look at 1 Kings chapter 9. It speaks to that fact. 1 Kings chapter 9, look at verse 15. Start with verse 15. It says, And this is the reason of the levy which King Solomon raised, for to build the house of the Lord and his own house and Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burnt it with fire and slain uh, the Canaanites that dwelt in the city and given it for a present unto his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer and Bethhoron the nether and Baalith and Tadmor in the wilderness and the land, and all the cities of store that Solomon had, and cities for his chariots, and cities for his horsemen, and that which Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, and in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. So, what we see here, he had a lot of building projects going on. Again, it was a time of prosperity, and he was building uh, cities, and he was building walls, and, and so the reason that it took God's house seven years and his own thirteen could be, and again, I could be wrong, but it could be, because his men went all in on the house of God in order to speed up the progress. And then when it came to his palace, some men worked on that while others worked on cities and while others worked on walls. But in our text, in 1 Kings chapter 7, we're not really given a lot of details to really give an accurate picture of what his palace would have looked like. There's, many, there's much fewer details given uh, than we see of the temple. And actually, uh, 2 Chronicles, it actually says nothing of Solomon's house. But we'll go ahead and go back to 1 Kings 7. Let's go back there. And we're going to go through some of these verses and uh, concerning Solomon's house. We're not going to dwell on it a lot, but we'll just, I'll just give you a brief overview before really getting into the heart of the message. Let's look at verse 2 and 3 of 1 Kings chapter 7. It says, He built also the house of the forest of Lebanon. The length thereof was an hundred cubits, and the breadth thereof fifty cubits, and the height thereof, thirty cubits, upon four rows of cedar pillars, with cedar beams upon the pillars. And it was covered with cedar upon the beams that lay on forty-five pillars, fifteen in a row. Now remember, a uh, cubit was uh, eighteen inches. So this palace here, this part of this uh, building, would be 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. And it contained forty-five pillars and beams. Look at verse 4. It says, And there were windows in three rows, and light was against the light in three ranks, and all the doors and posts were square with the windows, and light was against light in three ranks. And he made a porch of pillars, and the length thereof was fifty cubits, and the breadth thereof thirty cubits, and the porch was before them, and the other pillars and the thick beams were before them. And then he made a porch for the throne, where he might judge even the porch of judgment. And it was covered with cedar from one side of the floor to the other. So we see here this hall of pillars, 
and this porch or this hall for his throne where he could judge the people. Now, so he had this specific place where he was going to judge the people of Israel. We know that the kings, they were to do that. Uh, that was one of the, the insults of David that people often said, oh, he didn't take the time to judge the people. Well, this is what Solomon wanted to do. He wanted to make sure that he took the time to judge the people, and he had a dedicated hall or a porch of judgment. Look at verse 8. And his house where he dwelt had another court within the porch, which was of the like work. Solomon made also an house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife, like unto this porch. So we see here that Solomon's building his own area for him to live in, but also a separate place for one of his wives, the daughter of Pharaoh, which we know he married her, and we saw that back in chapter 3. Look at verse 9. It says, All these were of costly stones, according to the measure of huge stones, sawed with saws, within and without, even from the foundation under the uh, coping, and so on, the outside toward the great court. And the foundation was of costly stones, even great stones, stones of ten cubits, and stones of eight cubits, and above were costly stones, not to the measures of huge stones and cedars, and the great court round about was with three rows of huge stones and a row of cedar beams, both for the inner court of the house of the Lord and for the porch of the house. Now, we learn from verse 9, as it says, uh, go ahead and look at the bottom part of verse 9, and the latter part of verse 9 says, and so on the outside toward the great court. What is the great court? It's a temple. So we see from this verse that the palace that Solomon was building uh, was near the temple of God. And it speaks of this foundation being adjacent to the great court of the temple. So this palace that Solomon was building for himself and for his kingdom, it was very close to the temple. So Solomon, he would be dwelling near the presence of God. And I tell you what, there's no better place that you can be than the, near the presence of God. And this is what Solomon did. He made sure that he built this palace near the temple, near the presence of God. But like the temple, as we read, this house would have very expensive foundation, and it was made of costly stones. But then we're introduced to another man named Hiram of Tyree. Now remember, uh, Hiram of Tyree, he was the king that Solomon made deals with. But this Hiram of Tyree was a different Hiram. It was not the king, but rather a worker of brass that was very skilled in his craft. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> it says in verse 13, And King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to work all works in brass. And he came to King Solomon and wrought all of his work. So, Hiram, as we're going to see this weekend in, in a few weeks to come, he would go on to build several things of brass, and all of them were very significant. But for starters, the, the next several verses speak of two pillars in particular of brass that Hiram made. And these pillars, they were very special. They stood out from the 45 pillars that were part of Solomon's house. And these pillars, they would signify the majesty and the greatness of our God, just like many things with the temple did. Look at verse 15. It says, For he cast two pillars of brass of eighteen cubits high apiece, and a line of twelve cubits did compass, uh, compass either of them about. And look at verse 16. And he made two chapters of molten brass, to set upon the tops of the pillars. The height of the one chapter was five cubits, and the height of the other chapter was five cubits. So each of these two pillars, 
They stood at 27 feet. And then they had these chapters, or you could call them the crown of these pillars. So an additional 7.5 feet would be added on to these, and they would also be 18 feet around. So here we have two massive pillars that would stand at 34 and a half feet tall and 18 feet around. Jeremiah chapter 52 speaks of these pillars, and he tells us that these pillars were three inches thick, and they were hollow. But these pillars, they were not made for Solomon's house. Again, they were made for the temple. Let's look at verse 21. Verse 21. It says, And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple. And he set up the right pillar, and called the name thereof Yakin. And he set up the left pillar, and called the name thereof Boaz. So, here we have this temple has been completed. And these two pillars, though, they were made after the fact. Solomon had Hiram make these two pillars after the temple had already been completed. And the reason was is because they would be freestanding pillars on the outside entrance of this temple. Now these pillars, again, like most everything else about the temple, the purpose for them being there was to point to the majesty and the glory of God. Now, what's interesting about these pillars, these two pillars is that uh, it brought to mind for me the, the two forms of pillars that led the Israelites in the wilderness wandering. Let's go and look at that at Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. And we, we know that everything God does, it always has a meaning. There's always a reason why He does things and why He puts things into place. Uh, but Exodus chapter 13, uh, and most of you probably already know this, but I think it's very interesting. The, these pillars, these two forms of pillars in Exodus chapter 13, 13, and look at verse 20. It says in verse 20 of Exodus chapter 13, And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham, in the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, from before the people. Just imagine God leading his people in this way. A pillar of fire. And look, how, how could you have a pillar of fire leading you and guiding you at night like that and then forget about God, <laughs> right? But, but again, we do the same thing, right? How we have the word of God right in front of us and available for us to read, and yet we forget about who he is. But just as the temple would have these two massive pillars that stood before uh, the place of God's presence, the temple. The Israelites, they had these two pillars, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of cloud by night. That was the very presence of God. And these pillars of Exodus, they would be a guide. They would provide light. They would provide protection as God himself would go before them. But these pillars in Kings, they also carried much significance. They're actually given names. And again, that's how we know that it, uh, it really shows us the, the glorification of God as they, it carries much meaning. Look again at 1 Kings chapter 7. Go back there to our text, 1 Kings chapter 7. Look again at verse 21. In verse 21 of 1 Kings chapter 7, the Bible says, And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple. And he set up the right pillar, 
and called the name thereof Yachin, and he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz. So these two, the two names here of these massive pillars was Yachin and Boaz. Now it's very likely that uh, these pillars had their names engraved on them, and this was actually a very common practice uh, most of the time for pagan temples. Often the, the doors and the gates of pagan cities and temples, they would have the names of their gods inscribed on them in hopes that they would give them protection. But these two names, Yachin and Boaz, they had meaning that would give uh, allegiance to the Almighty God and they would serve as a reminder to the king of what they needed to do. And that name, Yachin, simply means he will establish. And then that name, Boaz, means in him is strength. So this first pillar, Yakin, the reason it was named that was to display the firmness of God's promise to establish the throne of David and his seed. Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And again, keep in mind the name of Yakin, it is, he will establish. It's a promise. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, look at verse 12. It says in verse 12, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever And again, God is talking to David here as he's getting ready uh, to die. And uh, here we have uh, Solomon getting ready to take his place. Look at verse 14. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established Forever. You getting the hint? He's going to establish his throne forever. Now, verse 12 is, of course, again, a reference to Solomon as he took over for David as the king while David was on his deathbed. But the seed that God was ultimately referring to was the seed of Jesus Christ. Because his throne would be established forever. So as Christ, as he came from that line of David, it was promised that his throne would be established forever. And this uh, forever established throne, understand it's not an earthly throne, but rather a, the heavenly throne of Christ. And this promise, it stood with David, it stood with Solomon, and it is represented by this pillar, Yachin. It would uh, be promised again throughout prophecy many times in the Old Testament, such as in Isaiah chapter 9, when it says this, For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This was a promise by God that his throne would be established Forever. And what's interesting about this is that this assurance of this promise, it didn't just happen often in the Old Testament, but it also uh, came to Mary 
from an angel of the Lord in Luke chapter 1. Let's go uh, to that place too. Please turn to Luke chapter 1 and see this. Luke chapter 1 verse 30. Luke chapter 1 verse 30. The Bible says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And look at verse 33. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So look, this promise is being made over and over and over again. And I want you to know tonight, church, that whenever God makes a promise and you can trust, it will come to pass. There's a lot of great promises in the Bible. But if God makes a promise, it's going to happen. He will make it come to pass. Charles Spurgeon said that the promises of God are longer than life, broader than sin, deeper than the grave, and higher than the clouds. This promise... Uh, the promise of this established heavenly kingdom is no different. It will come to pass. And by the way, we know Christ did come. He did die. He did rise again the third day in order to reconcile us to God. And one day, this promise will come to pass in its entirety, in its fullness. And this Christ, that, that scripture calls a greater than Solomon, he will establish his throne forever. As Revelation 22, verse 5 says, There shall be no more night, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So Yaakin, he will establish. And look, what a, what a wonderful joy it is to know and to cling to the great promises of God, such as that one. Look, when you feel that you have nothing to cling to, you can cling to that promise. He will establish. No, we look at our, the world today and what's going on, and uh, we see how, how evil our country's getting, and, and just a newsflash for you, it's probably going to get worse. But guess what? Christ is still going to reign. Christ is still on his throne, and nobody can change that. And one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So cling to that promise. Because nothing can stop his promises from coming to pass. And if God has spoken, it will come to pass. Uh, he's not like those that, that makes a promise and then does not follow through. And we've all had times where we've uh, experienced broken promises. Now, again, I, I keep bringing this up, but just with election season, how many politicians are doing their, their best to, to make the greatest promises that they can? And how many people are going to believe it? They believe it every four years. They believe all the promises that politicians make every time there's an election. And they're stunned when it doesn't come to pass. But guess what? God's not like that. He will keep his promises. In Joshua chapter 21, the Bible tells us that there failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. He always follows through. So look, just as sure as you can be that the sun's going to rise tomorrow, you can be even more certain that God will always keep His promises. He will establish it. And the second pillar of this temple also speaks to the power of God. Uh, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 7. We 
we see that the, the second pillar is named Boaz. And I just want to go ahead and look at that again here in verse 21. On 1 Kings chapter 7, it says, And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple, and he set up the right pillar, and called the name thereof Yachin, and he set up the left pillar, and called the name thereof Boaz. We see here the second pillar was named Boaz, and that just simply means, in him is strength. And this pillar, it would exalt the power of God, because he is the God of strength. You know, that, that truth right there should bring all people, all of God's people to a place of worship. As these, this pillar, Boaz, the, the fact that he is strength, it spoke to his strength while standing before the temple, and it would serve as a reminder to all people that pass by it of God's awesome power and the truth that he is worthy of worship, and he has all strength. We've seen during our uh, theology on uh, Wednesday nights how powerful God is. He's full of strength. And let's go to Psalm chapter 96. Psalm chapter 96. And I want you to just notice how it speaks to the strength of the Lord in his sanctuary, and, and really uh, speaking of the temple. Look at Psalm 96 and look at verse 3. It says in verse 3, and this of course is our theme for this year, it says, Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. And let me just stop right there and say, uh, do you have anything that you can declare that, uh, of God to the heathen that is wonderful? Of course we do. Just our salvation alone is, is worthy of declaring to the heathen. But look at verse 4. It says, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols and they're useless. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, bring an offering, and come into his course. And let me ask you this before we read verse 9. How much glory and praise is due unto the name of God? <laughs> we could never over-praise God. We could never outdo worshiping the Lord. Look at verse 9. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. So these, th this pillar... It would signify the strength and the beauty of God. And you know, we ought to worship God in the beauty of who He is. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is holy. In Him is strength. I think this is something that all of us need to be reminded of at times. You know, as human beings, we are very frail. We often lack strength. But we can praise God for His strength because He is the one that gives us strength. Hey, listen. Tonight... When it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to making the right decisions, when it comes to standing on what's right and standing strong in the faith or continuing in the things of God, you do not have the strength to endure on your own. Your strength must come from the source of strength, which is the Almighty God, because in Him is strength. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We all know the verse. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Not in yourself, but in the Lord. And I know that's a popular thing these days, and we'll have people, even in uh, churches, that will preach, oh, find strength within yourself. That is so unbiblical and wrong, it's not even funny. You find strength in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, not your own might, because you don't have any might. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in Him. Be strong in His grace. Look, no Christian can be of the mindset that they can live the Christian life and that they can please God in and of themselves. In case you didn't know, church, without God, we're nothing. And again, we, we talk a lot about this uh, in theology. If you want to ha- get a good grasp on what you are, then come on Wednesday nights. We're nothing. Without that source of strength, which is God, we are weak. And if we don't find our strength in God, we will fail. And I like what somebody put about, uh, how somebody put this, I don't know who said this, but they said to try to function without the power of God, and whether it be over sin or just in our own strength in general, to try to function without the power of God is as futile as trying to run an electric appliance without plugging it into the source of power. It's pointless. You can't do it. We know that our country strives to live independently of all help. We want to do everything by ourselves. We want to be independent of everything, including God. But a mature believer knows that living independently from God leaves them weak and vulnerable. As I speak tonight, I know that uh, there are many of you, and I have times like this myself, I've had times in the past, and it, it can be a struggle at times, but some of you are trying to have victory over sin in your own strength. Some of you are trying to live a holy life and trying to please God, and you're failing Time and time again, because you're trying to do it apart from God. You're trying to do it in your own strength. But our flesh is weak, and we need strength from God. And only in Him can we have victory over sin. Only in Him can we stand. Only in Him can we stand against the wiles of the devil. Only in Him can we accomplish everything. Look, you need to see yourself, and I need to see myself for what we are. We're weak, we're frail, we're helpless, we're flesh. And when we see ourselves uh, and the weakness that we possess within ourselves, it is then that we're going to be driven to God because we will know in Him is strength. And when we, when we fail to have a realistic view of ourselves, we're really robbing ourselves of a greater view of God. Look, when you see yourself for what you are, then you're going to see God for who He is. When you see yourself as weak, And unable to accomplish anything, it is then that you're going to see God as a source of strength. But we stand in desperate need of God every single day. Every single minute, we stand in desperate need of God. I had the honor of meeting John Getch a couple weeks ago, and he said this. He said that when adversity is most ready to strike us, God is most ready to strengthen us. Some of you need the strength from God this evening, more than others. You need to go to Him. Because He's always ready to strengthen us no matter what comes our way. 
Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. The Bible says, The Lord is my strength and my song. And He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare Him in habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 33 says, God is my strength and power. He maketh my way perfect. Job 12, 13 says, With Him, speaking of God, is wisdom and strength. He hath counsel and understanding. Psalm 37, verse 39 says, But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in times of trouble. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, we know that Paul said this, And God said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Hey, Christian, stop trying to do everything on your own. Stop trying to live the Christian life on your own. Boaz, in him is strength. Now, I think it's interesting that as this palace that Solomon was building, this, this uh, dwelling place, it was adjacent to the temple. Solomon and any of the kings that would dwell there for years to come, they would often see these freestanding pillars. Just imagine, if you will, being them and, and walking by the temple. And you look, and there you see Yakin and Boaz, those two massive pillars that stood 34 and a half feet tall and that were 18 feet wide. And you couldn't help but notice them because they were right there. And as these pillars, as they spoke to the promises and the strength of God, whenever the kings would walk by them, they would serve as a reminder of these great truths. Whenever they, they saw Yaakin, it would be a reminder to every single king that they ruled by God's appointment and by His grace. And whenever they would see Boaz, it would serve as a reminder to every king that no matter how great their accomplishments, no matter how mighty they appeared, their strength only lied in God. Hey, listen, church. It doesn't matter what you accomplish, whether it be in the secular world, in the workplace, or in the ministry for God. Your strength lies in God. You can do nothing on your own. And the very moment that you begin to think, I got this, you better take heed lest you fall. Well, this is true for each one of us here tonight. Apart from God, we can do nothing. Look, this church it will never grow or see great things done for God unless God does it. You know that? Nothing to do with me, nothing to do with you. Unless we're relying on God to do it, we're going to fail. The strength of this church does not lie within any member. It does not lie within me. Yes, you're an important part of this church, but truly the success and the strength of this church lies in God because in Him is strength. And anything that we hope to accomplish, and I, I pray often that God will use Shire Town Baptist Church to accomplish many great things for His glory in this town and abroad, uh, but anything that we hope to accomplish, it has to be done with God as our strength. We have to rely on Him. All must be done uh, with His people really just relying solely on Him because if we rely on ourselves, we will falter, we will fail, and we will be vulnerable because we are weak men and women. So look, allow these pillars, just like they would for the kings, allow them to stand before you each and every day to remind you that God, for one, keeps His promises. 
And again, cling to that. Man, God, he always keeps his promises. But also, he gives us the strength that we need to thrive for God in this wicked world. Hey, look, it doesn't matter how evil this world gets. You still serve a holy God. So cling to the pillars of his promises and cling to the pillar of his strength. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this evening.